And so when I was persecuted and bitten and threatened for my faith, you know, with threats and demands to leave Jesus, come back to Islam, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't because I said, if I leave Jesus, then what do I have? He became everything. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope. I'm Robin, and I am here with Lindy and Katie, and we are your podcast host. And do we have a story for you today? I'm actually going to tell you a little story before we get to the story, because <laughs> today we have John Burns, and it is mind-blowing to me how God brings us our stories. We have been praying for stories that are out of the box of women who have had radical experience, radical faith transformation. And about a month ago, month or two ago, I received a phone call from a friend that said, hey, there are several of us that have heard this story and we really just feel like it needs to be heard. And you were the first person I thought of to help get this story out. So she starts telling me the story of this girl who grew up in Uganda in a very wealthy family and went through all of this turmoil and ended up in the United States. And as she's telling me this story, I realize I know her. Mm. Like how many women in Birmingham, Alabama (laughs) grew up in Uganda in this situation and now live in the United States? And I said, is her name Jahan? (laughs) And she was like, um, yes. And I said, I know her. I've known her for years. We used to go to church together. So fast forward a few weeks, Jahan and I are reconnected. We had not talked in several years. Reconnected. She said, I would love to share my story. And When we recorded, we recorded on Zoom, and I think we actually went for two hours. You're Mm going to hear one hour of it. Mm -hmm. She and I talked a lot that I'll give you some details about that at the end, uh, maybe to fill in some gaps. But what you're about to listen to is like listening to a movie. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I was on the edge of my seat listening to it. I mean, and, and just how she tells her story, you feel like you are walking alongside of her. You're going to get a little bit of a history lesson as well, which I loved that. Just um, Uganda and just what was going on. I guess it was in the 80s right. when she was growing up there and um, and the war-torn you know, atmosphere and environment that she was growing up in. But what was so beautiful is how God met her. Guys, wow. he is still in the business of miracles mm-hmm. and meeting you exactly where you are because he pursues you. So I can't wait for you to hear her story. As Robin said, it is an action movie and it is like nothing. Just the persecution alone mm. is is just incredible and how Jesus, you will hear the importance of Jesus, how he found her. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. I'm so excited because it's our one-year Patreon birthday. We've been talking about this, and we have some extra gifts for you because one thing that we're going to do to celebrate our one year as we go forward is we have listened to you, and you guys love stories within the story. So now we're not going to bring just one, but we're going to bring two every month. That's right, Lindy. We are so excited. Um, Last week, we gave you Jessica Royce. The week before that, we gave you Wendy Pope. So we've already started celebrating by offering you two stories within the story. And then also, I said this last week, but we are going to be having, instead of a one-sheet Bible study discovery guide, you are going to be getting now, once a month, a short devotional audio from me 
related to a story of that month. And we're really just going to dig into some scripture, help you to understand maybe some concepts in the Bible that you don't understand, or maybe even dig into a character that is similar to someone who has shared her story. So I'm really excited about that. And to celebrate our year birthday, we are doing some giveaways. So if you join Patreon this month, you are entered in a giveaway for one of our Storytellers Love sweatshirts. And we're not just going to give away one sweatshirt, we're going to give away two. So if you are already a member of Patreon, we're going to draw names from everybody who is already a member. So there's going to be two given away this month, one to anyone who joins Patreon this month. And again, if you join Patreon, what you're doing is helping to financially support our ministry. You're helping us to grow. You're helping more and more people hear stories of hope. You're helping us pay the bills. And in return, we are so, so thankful for you and that we are supported financially by you. And so you can go to the link in the show notes. There is a link on Instagram. There is a link on our website at storytellerslive.org. Or you can go straight to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash STL community and join us today for five or $10 a month. All of it goes straight to supporting this podcast. Thank you so much. And we are thrilled for you to hear Jahan's story. So, hi, uh, my name is Jahan Barnes. And before I got married, my name was Jahan Nkwanga. And I'm from Africa, from Uganda in East Africa. I um, have an interesting story that I want to share with you about God, God's goodness, and how he just rescued me from such a dark, dark place. So um, I was born in Uganda, and my father was in the military. He kind of had an interesting story. Uganda was a British colony, and um, my father ran away from the missionary school and joined the um, army and helped the Uganda get in its independence from England, Great Britain. And he rose through the ranks and um, quickly just started going for military training abroad, eventually ended up training in Israel as a commando. So he come, he came back from Israel, back to Uganda, and was promoted. It was around the same time that there was a coup in the army, and we got a president um, coming through the coup called Idi Amin, um, who later became like a really horrible dictator, started slaughtering hundreds and thousands of people in Uganda, especially people from my tribe, which we come from the biggest tribe in Uganda called the Baganda, out of which the British named our country, you know, Uganda. So in the midst of all those convulsions, you know, Idi Amin, who was Muslim, took the country and really tried to turn it into an Islamic country. The church was persecuted and killed. You know, the church went underground completely. Uh, my dad, along with his friends that tried to resist, you know, became the target for um, Idi Amin. And many of his friends escaped, but because of my father's high position, he was not able to escape. And this one time, my mom was pregnant with me and the soldiers came to our house, you know, and they were looking for my dad. And he didn't have time to, you know, run and hide except to go into the ceiling. And they had come before and they'd, you know, searched, turned the house upside down, trying to find him. And they had searched the ceiling too. So my mom was like, they're going to find him for sure. And so they came and they said, demanding, they're like, you need to tell us where he is. 
And she was quiet and she was just like shaking her head, you know, trying to indicate that she didn't know where he was. And one of the soldiers got the barrel of his gun and shoved it into her belly. And he said, I'm going to shoot you wide open and kill you and that child within you if you don't tell me where your husband is. And my mom was Muslim. My dad was a Christian, but didn't know Jesus personally. He was more like religious, you know, Anglican religious. So they had no concept of God or prayer. But in that moment of her desperation, knowing that this wasn't an idle threat, she cried out to God, like, and from that, she said it was the deepest cry that she's ever had. You know, she said she's never cried out to God like that before and since. But in that moment, she said, God, if you will help me, if you will save my life and this baby's life, if you can only do that for me, God, help me. And once she finished praying that, she opened her eyes and the soldier was looking at her and he had a glazed look in his eyes and he just removed the barrel of his gun from her belly. And he turned to the other soldier and said, let's go. They didn't search the house and that my mom survived. I survived in her womb. My dad survived. So Idi Amin, as a president, did many, many horrible things. He helped the, uh, in the hijacking of an Air France plane that was filled with Israeli citizens and Jewish you know, national, nationals. He brought that plane to Uganda. He helped, you know, he created a situation where those hostages could come to Uganda. And, you know, and his goal was to demand that Israel release terrorists, the Palestinian terrorists that went in prison. It became like an international incident. But out of that was born the Israeli um, spirit of bravery, because for the first time, the Israelis said, you know what, we've just, we just lost six million people in the Holocaust. And now we have, you know, at least 100 or more hostages in Uganda who are going to die. And they're like, we're not going to negotiate. Before that, the concept was you negotiate with terrorists, you know, for the release of hostages. And the Israelis said, we're not going to do that. We're going to come up with an operation that's going to rescue our hostages. But they needed miracles to get to do that. Most African countries had cut ties off with Israel. So Israel had to fly their planes all the way to Uganda. But they had to stop somewhere and refuel. They needed a miracle. They needed a country that would allow them to stop and refuel. They had to fly undetected by radar, otherwise they would be shot down. They had to go past our security, you know, and get into the airport, you know, and actually rescue their hostages because the hostages were being held at the airport in Uganda, in, you know, in Kampala, in Tebe. So God gave them the miracles. Kenya allowed them to refuel. They flew undetected by radar. They got, a, you know, they flew three planes to Uganda. One had the commandos, which was led by Benjamin Netanyahu's older brother. You know, the other plane was empty. It was going to bring back the hostages. The third plane had three vehicles that looked exactly like our president's vehicle. So they're going to pose as the president, as Idi Amin. And they did all that. And providentially, God, in his wisdom, you know, had set it up that the Israelis had built the Ugandan airport. So they knew the whole layout. They knew where possibly so many hostages could be held. They blazed past our security 
and they rescued their hostages. But Benjamin Netanyahu's older brother was shot and killed. He was the only person that died during that operation. So, but after that, our country descended into anarchy because, you know, the Bible says that, you know, when you touch Israel, you touch the apple of his eye, that when you bless Israel, he blesses us. When we curse Israel, he curses us. Well, our country descended into anarchy, you know, under Idi Amin. And eventually enough people had fled into exile and were able to get um, help from the neighboring countries. And they marched into Uganda, you know, to oust Idi Amin which he became very desperate and sent a message to my dad. Would you help me quell that rebellion and resistance? Well, my dad didn't. Of course, he joined the liberators and they were able to liberate Idi Amin, Uganda from Idi Amin. He fled to Libya and Saudi Arabia, but our country descended further into civil war. I was born the year that Idi Amin was ousted in 1979. And my earliest memories are memories of war. I saw my first corpse at five years old. I remember that one time our house was bombed and my mom fled to exile and my dad found himself heading an army and just doing his best to protect the central and the southern half of Uganda where our tribe was located. It wasn't his idea. It wasn't his desire, but it was war and you had to survive. So he found himself just leading an army and involved in guerrilla warfare. You know, we had like five fighting factions in the country. So with our house bombed, my mom in exile, we ended up living with our grandmother in the village where, you know, it was supposed to be a little bit safer than the town, you know. And I remember though that at the time, that's when I began to pray. It's not like anyone had ever told me about God but I just had this yearning within me that there has to be someone so powerful that can help me, you know, and, and I would find myself having conversations with God, not that I had anything back from him, but I always told him how I felt. And my continued prayer was, God, would you bring my parents back? Can you bring my mommy and daddy home? Over and over, I prayed this prayer. And then one day, my uncle, who lived closer to the city, came to my grandmother's village and he came at a time where it was so traumatic traumatic because you know like the neighboring village had been attacked and you know lots of people killed and there were lots of orphans young children you know there are documentaries of the 80s in Uganda at the time during the war and you see children playing with skulls these were their toys skulls so my uncle comes at this time where it's so traumatic and he says, I have heard from your father. They are working on a peace deal to form a unity government. And I've, he sent me to take you to live with me so that if that comes into play, he will come pick you up and it will be a, a shorter distance for him to come get you from my house than come all the way to the village. And I was so excited. So my sister and I, we left, you know, and to live with him. And I don't know what I thought life was going to be like, but it was, it was horrible. You know, he was gone most of the time. He was a secret agent and a spy for my father's army. And, and, and so he, he left me to, to live with, you know, he let my sister and I to live with, you know, his other family. They were Muslim. You know, during war, people lose their humanity because everyone's afraid, you know. People don't know if they're going to be alive tomorrow. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. So everyone is just trying to survive. And 
little acts of kindness are non-existent, non-existent. And I remember that my sister, who was older than me, four and a half years, you know, could understand and process a war better than I did. And she was so traumatized that she used to wet the bed. And every morning, you know, they inspected our beds and uh, they would hit us in the head with this huge wooden brush, you know. So I learned to wake myself up in the middle of the night, you know, and, and try to wake my sister up. You know, it was, sometimes it was too late, you know, and sometimes I, I would just say, okay, let's exchange beds, you know, so we would share the beating. And I remember Robin that my sister, my everything. She was my everything because I had no mom. I had no dad. She was it. She was my comforter, my friend, my best friend. We walked to school together. You know, we had been enrolled in a little school under false names because of who my dad was and the fear of us being kidnapped. No one really, you know, knew who we were. And even at school, school was, you know, that they beat us for anything and everything, not only us, but all the students like. People, as I said, just lose their humanity during the war. Most people, not everyone, but most people do. So I remember this one time my sister got very ill with malaria. She could not walk me to school. And I thought, I'm not going to stay. I want to go to school. So I decided to walk myself to school. I was about six, almost six, five and a half, six. And I didn't know that I didn't know the way to school until I was like lost. And I walked and I walked and I walked. And I didn't know where I was. I came across this very busy road. I could not cross the road. I was so overcome, so confused. And it began to rain, rain so hard. And I was drenched. And I remember feeling so defeated, so defeated that I sat down in the puddle, in the mud puddle and began to wail, wail. But this is war. Cars were just driving past me as a kid barely six and I'm just wailing because I'm overcome I don't know what to do and in the midst of my grief and you know just wailing I had a voice calling me by my native name Nancha like Nancha what are you doing here and I look up and it's my mom you know I had not seen my mom in a really long time and I begin to cry even harder and she lifts me up I mean I was dripping wet with mud and, you know, dirt and everything. And she just carried me. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm trying to go to school, but I, I, don't, I don't know how to get there. She said, I know the way to school. I don't know how she knew the way to school, but she starts walking me to school. And I'm just crying and I'm just telling how terrible life is. And, and I'm like, when are you and daddy coming back? And she tells me, I want you to be brave and hold on for just a little bit longer. Your daddy's coming. I promise you, your daddy's coming just be brave. So we get to school and I cling to, and I'm like, they're going to beat me for being dirty. They're going to beat me. She's like, just be brave. And she has to extricate herself from me because I am clinging to her and crying so bad. And she left and I got in and of course I was bitten for being dirty and muddy and all that. But somehow I had this hope, you know, in me, and I remember that, that afternoon when my uncle came to pick me up from school, he's like, how did you get to school? I said, mommy, mommy came. And, and he said, no, she didn't. I said, yes, she did. He said, your mom is not in the country. I said, yes, she is. So next week, my dad actually came. But fast forward a little bit is many years later, I sat down with my mom. And I said, do you remember that day? 
when you came and found me by the roadside and took me to school. She said, I wasn't there. That wasn't me. I wasn't in the country. I don't know who that was. Now I know as a Christian that God sends angels amongst us. In that my moment of dispersion and greatest despair, the person I needed to see the most was my mom. And the person he sent was my mom. The angel that he sent me was my mom. And, and my mom told me, be brave, your dad's coming. And the next week my dad came. And it was the first time I, I comprehended that, that my dad was important, that town shut down, you know, there were soldiers everywhere. And, you know, and there we were, like everyone was just listening to him give a speech. And I remember like my kindergarten teacher just like looking at us with like wide eyes, like she could not believe that we were actually related to this man. And, and I remember that my dad, you know, telling us, I'm going to come for you next week. We're finalizing, you know, the peace deal. Uh, I, we don't have a house yet. I'm living in a hotel. I said, I'm not staying. I like clung to my dad. I, I said, I'm leaving. I don't care where you're living. You know, where your house is, if you're sleeping in the bush, I'm coming. So I went with my dad. And we lived in a hotel. He had rented like half a hotel, you know, and, and, and some of the soldiers, you know, were using the hotel rooms and I was there. And it was also the first time in my life that I saw a white person. That's what we call them in Uganda. And it was it was these two journalists, actually, a girl, a guy and a girl that had come to cover, you know, the war and my dad. And and I had, it was so mesmerizing to me. You know, I would wake up in the morning, not brush my teeth, just like run from my end of the hotel to the end of the hotel. I could not speak a single word of English, but I would knock on their door, you know, and, and then we'd have sign language and you know, they introduced me to chocolate. I had never eaten anything so delightful. I'm like, oh my God, you know, so I, would, I was every morning I'd motion for chocolate and then I would sit down and, and, you know, sit in the lap of the girl and I would just close my eyes and run my hand through her hair. It was beautiful and silky, so different from mine that was curly and kinky. And I mean, they were the first, aside from my parents, the first people that, and my sister that were kind, right? And, and I would just stroke her hair and she would just let me do that for as long as I wanted to do that. And then I would get tired and, you know, and then I would sit on the guy's lap and, and he had hairy arms and I would pull the, you know, the hair on his arms and pinch him because his, his skin turned colors. And it was, it was incredible, you know? And so after, you know, about three, four weeks, they left, you know, because they're done with their story. And my dad, you know, got a home and uh, we moved into that home, but it was, you know, we had a peace government in place, but it was still unsafe. So my dad didn't let me go outside and play. And, uh, you know, our home was on a lot of land and there were barracks for assault, some of our soldiers, but there was a little boy there that my dad had rescued that became my playmate. And this boy, I remember when they first introduced me to him, I, I said, what's your name? And he said, Kadogo. And I said, that's not a name. He said, it's my name. And I remember asking my dad, why is it called Kadogo? Kadogo is a Swahili word for child soldier. He said, well, because we don't know his name. Much later, I came to find out his story was he was invited. My dad was called to go rescue his village from, you know, the rebels. And he got there too late. 
and everyone had been slaughtered. And as he's walking through the dead bodies, he hears a child crying and he follows the sound and finds this little toddler laying on top of its mom's, you know, naked body, just saying, mama, mama, just trying to wake its mom up, not knowing that she was dead. So they, he picks him up, you know, dresses him up in, in a soldier's shirt. These are soldiers living very roughly in the villages and the bushes, you know, and now they have a child to look after. And they raise this child with them, you know, in the bush. By the time I met him, I was six. He was about eight, but very, very traumatized. My dad tried to enroll us in school together and he could not focus. So he just was a child soldier, but he was my friend. So I'd come from school and I would tell him about school and would play. And my dad had given us strict instructions and said, when it gets dark, you get into the house. Don't wait for it to get dark. You get into the house. You know, you don't really understand why they're giving these instructions, you know. So one time he wasn't around and we were just listening to a soldier tell us all these R-rated stories about the war. It got dark and we just continued listening, you know. But our compound came under attack. Our electric power was cut off and they began to shoot. And we were where the soldiers' barracks were, far from the main house. It was a night when there was no moon, you know, the moon was hidden. I mean, and in Africa, Africa can be really dark when the moon doesn't come out. I had never had bullets that close, that close to me. And I lost all my sense of bearing, understanding. And I just begin to hysterically cry, kind of go, what do I do? What do I do? And instinctively for him, because he knew the war, he just tells me, run. Whatever you do, don't stop running. And I'm just running. I don't know in what direction I'm running, but I can hear him close by me just saying, keep running. Just keep running. And I was so overcome with terror at some point. I said, I can't go on. I can't go on. I don't know where to go. And then I felt someone shove me and I hit my head so hard on the concrete and passed out. I don't know how long I was passed out. But when I came to, there was someone laying on top of me just saying, mama, mama, mama. I don't know how long we lay there, but they eventually found us. And there was this little boy pushed me to the ground and just shielded me with his body. Do you know that when order was restored to the compound, there were corpses of soldiers laying in the compound that had died, our soldiers, that if this little boy had not shoved me to the ground and shielded me, we would probably both be dead. And it was incredible, but it took him back to that toddler stage. And he wasn't the same after that. It took him a while. He didn't want to play after that, you know. And that attack was the first of many other bad things. The unity government fell apart. And we got to a point where going to school involved my dad just putting us in, you know, an armored vehicle, actually a convoy of armored vehicles to get to school. I would get to school and he would leave me there with bodyguard soldiers and I would be there all day. Then he would come get me. This one day though, he leaves me at school. He comes back like an hour later and he's like, we have to go. And we're going home and they're shooting at our vehicles. We get home and I had never seen my dad agitated. He was always a person that was 
such a great soldier, so brave, so in control, you know, but this time he was just like smoking cigarette after cigarette, pacing up and down, taking phone call after phone call. So in the early afternoon, he gets a phone call from his friend and he says, George, that was my father's name, George, you need to come to the hotel. We need to go back to the negotiating table. We need to salvage the unity government. And my dad says, I'm coming. He hangs up the phone and my uncle says, who was that? And my dad tells him and he says, don't go. It is so dangerous out. Don't go. And my dad says, this is the only chance we have to bring sustained calm. You know, like hundreds and thousands of people were dead because of the war in such a short span. So he gets four Range Rovers. My uncle says he packed between 40 and 50 soldiers in these Range Rovers. And he left along with Kadogo, you know, who went with him. He used to really want to go with him everywhere. So we stay home. Well, my dad went into this, you know, he went to the hotel that they used to hold their peace talks. It's a famous hotel in Uganda. Um, he gets there and there are no peace talks. He walks into an ambush and they behead all the soldiers. They open a window and drop this boy, Kadogo, outside. He was the only one that survived. They get my dad, put him in a car, drive him through Kampala. Kampala is the capital city of Uganda. They go to a suburb, you know, on a lonely road called Silver Springs, and they get him out of the car, and they shoot him multiple times in the head, in the neck, in the chest. And then they throw his body in a ditch. And one of his hands was left lying outside. They finished doing that and they called the media and they tipped off the media. They're like, we have it on good authority that Colonel George Nkwanga is dead. You may announce it. And that evening, we hear it on the news. That's how we got to know the panic, the terror, the fear that we felt. I don't know that I can describe it for you in words. We had only one Range Rover left. And we decide if indeed he's dead, then whoever killed him is going to come kill us. So we say, let's go to the village. My dad had a village home far from the city. Let's go there and be safe while we send out such parties to find out the truth. So we went to the village. So with one Range Rover, how much can a family pack? First week, such parties are combing the city for his body. They can't find anything. Second week, you know, there's such parties everywhere. One of his friends ended up on Silver Springs Road, and he didn't know why he could not stop driving up and down that road. And at a certain time, he turns his head in a certain direction, and he sees an arm. He'd been looking at dead bodies all week, but somehow something within him stops him and he stops the vehicle and he goes and he identifies, he looks and he's like, the corpse is wearing a soldier's uniform. And he's like, this is hopeful. He tries to look at the face, but it is shot beyond recognition. And he looks at the arm again and realizes it's a bracelet. And he bends down and looks at that bracelet and he identifies my dad because a bracelet had his name and army number. So I'm six and a half years old and they bring this decomposing body 
to the village and they're telling me, this is your father. And according to our African burial customs, the widow and the children are supposed to wash this body and prepare it for burial. And I look at this part, you know, that cruelty with which they had killed him was astounding to me. They, he was shot everywhere. And, and you could see maggots just coming out of every hole. And I went into a state of shock. And I'm like, this is not my dad. And I'm not going to touch him. And for years, I lived in some sort of fantasy world where I thought, my dad's not dead. That one day, I kept on thinking, one day I'm going to be seated somewhere, you know, and my dad's going to walk in and say, surprise, that wasn't me. But it never happened. And, and so thousands of people begin to show up for this funeral. And I can't process it. I have gone into a complete state of shock. I did not cry a single tear. Everyone was weeping, wailing. You know, African mourning is so expressive, you know, loud. People throw themselves on the ground. I mean, I my mom wept until she was going to die. My sister, you know, they shaved off everyone's hair. I said, I'm not shaving off my hair. You know, I was six and a half, but I was, I don't know, I was really strong-willed and something had just come over me. And I just said, that's not my dad. Why am I shaving my hair off when he's not my dad? So we had a full military funeral. And one of the shocking things was they brought, you know, these children came out of the woodworks that we had never seen before. But they were my dad's kids. So we find out that he'd been having affairs. So imagine the grief that my mom was experiencing. My mom went into a depression that she never recovered from to the day she died. Well, we go through the mourning process, burial process, at least a month. And we're looking for normalcy, normal, longing for home. So that they arrived and were ready to go back home. And we get to the gate and they're totally different soldiers at the gate. And um, they say, you can't come in. And my mom's like, what do you mean? This is home. They're like, no, someone's moved in and taken off. She's like, this is my home. It belonged to me and my husband. They're like, not anymore. The man that had called, my dad's friend that had called my dad to come for the peace talks is a man that betrayed him. He's a man that moved into our home. And my mom just broke down, began banging on the gate. I want to come in. This is my home. And caused so much mayhem that a soldier that was inside the compound comes to open and opens the gate wide to see what's going on. You know, ask the soldiers, I said, what's going on? And I look inside the gate and there's a girl my age and she's wearing my dress and holding my doll. And I felt my heart break into a million pieces because I think it was in that moment that I realized that something was terribly wrong. And that even though I was living in denial about my dad's death, something was really, really wrong. And life as I knew it was over. And our eyes connected. Do you know that years later, I met this girl at university. And once again, our eyes connected. We both knew who we, who we were. And once again, I'm now a 19-year-old, but I'm looking at her. And I'm back in my six-year-old body. And I'm breaking into pieces. 
And for all the years that I was at university, I never brought my, we never said a single word to each other. But you know, that day we were turned away. That day we became homeless. Next day, my mom went to the bank. Everything had been cleaned out. Why didn't we report it to the police? Why didn't we file a lawsuit? Because everything was broken down during the war. The soldiers were the law. My dad was the law when he was alive. And now that he was dead, we were nothing. We were chattel. We were objects. My mom came from a Muslim home. My dad was Anglican. She had been disowned for marrying a non-Muslim. We were left without support. Sometimes people took us in for a month. Sometimes people took us in for two weeks. It was incredibly hard. Eventually, we ended up on a farm deep, deep in the village. No running water, no electricity. The only thing my mom could afford was living in one room. And we, there was one twin bed in that room. And me and my sister and my mom slept on that bed. And she crammed every little belonging that she had under that bed until it was so uncomfortable that she had to put my sister in boarding school. So I look back though, you know, now as a Christian, I have the advantage of looking at things through the lens of faith. And I say that time was hard. We walked for miles, you know, miles and miles to get water, you know, from a river. It was difficult. Many times we slept hungry, but I see that God's hand was still on our lives. I remember one night, my mom waking me up in the middle of the night. She's like, wake up now, wake up. And I got up and she says, I said, well, I don't want to sleep, you know, because we used to wake up so early to start walking for miles to get to the bus, to get to town, to get to school. And I'm like, I, I just don't want to wake up, you know. And she's like, get up. We need to go outside until morning. So she made me stand out in the cold until morning. And I'm like, what's going on? She's like, I don't know, but something's wrong. So in the morning, she walks to the shop and buys kerosene. And you're going to call it paraffin. And she comes back and opens the door very carefully to to our room, our bedroom, and starts pulling things out, you know, very carefully, very slowly until she gets to under the bed. Do you know what she found under the bed? A nest of cobras, cobra snakes, one of the most poisonous species of snakes in in Uganda, in Africa. Like a a cobra bites you, you're going to be dead before you get to the hospital. They are very, very venomous. But you think about that. How did she know? She was deep asleep and suddenly she wakes up and she knows I'm in danger and she can't tell why or how. But all she knows is that this instinct within is telling her, get out and get up now. So she did, you know, and God saved us. The way, you know, we would walk for miles to in the morning, you know, to get to the bus in a village where no one had electricity. We were never attacked by lions, by pythons. But you had stories of people being killed that way, you know. So eventually we got a new president. And, you know, my mom would write him letters by lamplight. I am the widow of so-and-so. You know my husband. You know what he did for this country. I need you to help me. Day after day, month after month, until one day I came home and she was just weeping. I said, what's wrong? She's like, I met the president today. And he asked me to ask for anything I wanted. I said, what did you ask for? She goes, 
I asked him to pay for your education. And I was so mad. I said, why don't you ask for a car? You know, because we're so tired of walking, you know. But she asked for the best thing. You know, we got to go to very good schools because the president paid for our education. And fast forward, you know, my mom, to get back her family support, went and repented. And, and they said, convert your children to Islam. So at 10 years old, I became a Muslim. And I was so broken that I said, God, maybe I'll find God in Islam. And I threw myself in it. And I read, tried, learned to read the Quran in English and learned to pray the Arabic prayers. And, but it, my life just got worse and worse. Then someone introduced my mom to the occult and that introduced hell into our lives. And by the time I was 13, I was messed up. I had nightmares. I couldn't sleep. I was hateful. I was afraid. I was afraid of anything and everything. I was afraid of being by myself during the day, at night. I, you know, I had such intense nightmares. I was so messed up. I became manic. I couldn't sleep. At 13 years old, because of a British system of education, having been a British colony, I ended up in a missionary school by God's good grace because I had to qualify. It was the best girls' school in the whole country, British boarding missionary school in Uganda. I end up there, and for the first time, I encounter Christians, and they begin to tell me about Jesus. And I was so hateful and so angry. I remember there was a girl called Suzanne, and she Every day she presented the gospel to me and every day I insulted her and abused her and, you know, was mean to her. And one day we were sitting and she says, Jahan, um, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost said, he's going to save you. And I flew into a rage and I was yelling and telling her how much I hated her. And I, you know, I her pencil fell down and I, in this superhuman demonic strength I shoved the table the metallic table and it came crashing down her neck and she passed out and I thought I've killed her do you know I was so 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 overcome by what I'd done they took the girl away I was waiting for two weeks for the police to come and arrest me I didn't tell anyone what I'd done but two weeks later the girl walks in with a neck brace and she says she comes and sits by me and she says I don't hate you I'm not even angry at you. She said, I woke up in the hospital and in so much pain and I was angry. But she said, then Jesus came. She said, I didn't see him, but he was there. I felt him. And he spoke very clearly to me. And he said, forgive Jahan. She doesn't know what she's doing. I really am going to save her. And so once again, this girl that I hated, I'd almost killed, presented the gospel to me. And something within me broke. And I could not insult her anymore. So I didn't get saved right there and then. But some time passed. And one day I was by, I was by myself. And I started feeling so afraid. And I felt like I was going to die, that I was in the presence of such a great evil, that I had to do something about it. And I began to run in the dark. And I don't know where I'm going. When I came to a stop, I was right outside our chapel door. And I had no intention of going to the chapel. I was Muslim. But I was so afraid and the chapel looked so compelling and inviting. And I walked in and I was so uncomfortable because everyone gasped and looked at me like, oh, my gosh. So after five, 10 minutes, I walk out and a girl follows me. And she's like, come back. I said, no. I said, everyone hates me. 
you know, I know I've been mean to everyone. I get it. I don't have to come back. She says, we've been praying for you every weekend. It's the first miracle we've seen God give us that you've actually come in. So she said, Jahan, are you afraid? I said, yeah. I said, I'm so afraid. She was the first person ever that I confessed to that I was afraid. She said, you need to sleep with your Bible. I said, that's what, what does that do? She's like, oh, you hug it when you're afraid and God helps you. So, you know, look, I'm coming from witchcraft and the occult. We believe in charms for everything. So it was a missionary school. Everyone was given a Bible. So I go and I dust mine off and I get in my bed and I put that Bible to my chest and I'm willing it to work like it's some sort of magic charm. And all of a sudden I hear a thought, a, a voice, but it, it came as a thought. And he spoke to me and he said, John, are you going to sleep with this book? And you don't even know what it says. You may as well sleep with your history textbook. It was so clear and so real as if it was loud, but not loud. And I, I just said, yeah, what's in this book? I don't know how to read the Bible. It didn't have a concordance. It didn't have a summary. I said, what do I do? So I just flipped it open. And guess what? It fell open to Psalm 91. The very best thing that God could have used to reach a very broken, very fearful person like me. And I begin to read, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, you're my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And the words came alive and they leaped off the page and it was like they hugged me. That is what the word of God is like. It just hugs you. You know, it was so incredible that I read it twice and I was like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And then a deep sleep came over me. And when I woke up the next morning, someone was shaking me awake and I thought I was having a nightmare, but the sunlight was streaming in, you know, and I looked and the Bible was still on my chest. And for the first time in years, I had slept all night long without a nightmare, without an incident, without a panic attack. And I'm looking at the Bible and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, it works. And I said, if only one passage made me sleep all night, what will happen if I read the whole thing? So I skipped class. I was in so much trouble, but I had to find out. And I went and I sat in the grass and I leaned against a you know, huge tree trunk. And I began to read from Genesis and God met me there. And the words were so alive. It's not like I understood everything, but it was so alive. First day I did that until I could not see anymore. It was too dark. I went back second day and it was too dark. And I went back the third day. And by midday, I was done with reading the Bible and had read from Genesis to Revelations. And I knew, I knew it that God of the Bible was God. Not anyone else I had been taught to worship, no one but God of the Bible. And I knew that I had to give my life to him. I wasn't even aware at that time that maybe I'm a sinner, but I just knew that I have a need for this God as presented in the Bible. So I went into the chapel and I knelt down and I said, God, I didn't know how to pray, but I just said, God of the Bible, I know your God. I've read and I understand your God. If I said the greatest need I have is I have so much darkness and I'm so broken in every way. If you will take my darkness away, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And the moment I said that, two things happened to me. I began to feel a warmth travel all over my body. It was like a warm sensation and it settled in my chest. And I'd always carried 
a heaviness in my chest. It was like I was carrying a millstone in my chest from the day I had looked at my father's corpse. But all of a sudden, I'm feeling this warmth in my chest, and I feel like there is something melting in there. And I begin to cry and cry and cry. But I'm not sad. It was the weirdest thing, you know. And when I, you know, and I start having these flashbacks of, of my life, of the pain, the abuse, the, you know, all that. And I'm just crying. But when I finished, when the tears stopped, I felt free and I felt clean. And no one had ever told me I was dirty. But all of a sudden, I'm just feeling like, whoa, something is happening to me. And I get up and I walk. And I remember that I walked outside of the chapel and I looked into the sun. And I, it was as if I saw the world afresh. It was as if I seen the world for the first time. The grass was so green. The flowers were vibrant. I saw a girl walk towards me that I absolutely hated before. And my... I had, I felt this strange stirring in my heart. And as if I was in slow motion, I walked up to her and I held up my hands to her and I hugged her and I said, I love you. And she was just like, ah, what's happened to you? you know? And I shocked her as much as I shocked myself because no one had ever told me I love you. I had never told anyone I love you. We just didn't talk like that. I didn't know where it came from. And I looked at her and I said, I think I found God. She let, she dropped her books. She ran, she told her missionaries, the whole school was on fire, you know? And the, one of the missionaries called me, we call her Barbie. Her name was Miss Hobdy. She called me. She's like, I heard you came to Jesus. I said, no, I gave my life to God, <laughs> you know, because I'm afraid, you know, I'm, I, I've been conditioned by Islam that God has no son. I'm like, I gave my life to the God of the Bible. She said, well, honey, he is the same. He has a son. They are one and the same. So she presents the gospel to me. And she says, and by the way, honey, you're a sinner. You know, I'm like, I am. She says, yeah. So she presents the whole gospel to me. And I give my life to Jesus. I was very much persecuted for my faith. But he was everything. Because he came into my life. And he just begun. It's as if you, have you seen a house, a place that's been turned upside down by a hurricane you know that's how my life was and he came in and he just began to set everything right and I began to sleep and the more I, I, I rested the more I became normal and so when I was persecuted and bitten and threatened for my faith you know with threats and demands to leave Jesus come back to Islam I couldn't, you know, I couldn't because I said, if I leave Jesus, then what do I have? He became everything. I went through starvations. I slept on the floor. I, I, I cannot tell you, it's too long a story. But I paid a price for my faith. But it was worth it. It was worth every insult every beating, every pain. And I was 14 and a half, 15 when I first came to the Lord. Now a 42-year-old woman. And Jesus has walked with me so closely, so intimately that he means everything. I'm, I'm now, you know, there was a day that I was in agony and I was in pain and I was crying and I'd been beaten black and blue. And I said, God, will I ever 
come into a place where I can freely worship you, where I can be happy. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, yes, I'm going to take you to a country one day that's flowing with milk and honey and people love me there and you will worship and you will sing and you'll praise and no one will ever make you afraid again. And I said, God, where is that? And he said, America. God gave me that promise when I was 15. He brought me to America when I was 25. And indeed, he has given me joy. I worship and I pray and I sing and I read my Bible and no one makes me afraid. I am so grateful to Jesus, so grateful for America, so grateful for what God is doing in Israel. In all that, he brought me, you know, into loving Israel because Israel is important to him. You know, I end up, you know, meeting Heather Johnston for Jesus Israel because for years I've been traveling and speaking and people would tell me, you need to find Heather Johnston. She's incredible. She's amazing. God is using her. You have the same DNA. And one day God brought us together, you know, and I left my law practice and began to work for Jesus Israel and Heather Johnston. And it every day is a day of experiencing miracles. It's a day of waking up with excitement at, What's, what, what's God going to do? How is he going to move? You know, and so life in the Lord is an adventure. We can know him intimately. Every day we can walk with him and hear from him and transmit his presence into the lives of other people. And I'm privileged and honored to do that and honored that he chose me and that, you know, he chooses us if we will respond to him. So God bless you. Well, I hope you're like me and just kind of sitting in awe of Jahan and all God did in her story. We're going to end a little bit different today just because we want you to really sit and process her story and ask God, you know, where is he meeting you in your life? Maybe you have some questions about Jahan's story. We all were like, oh, we want to hear more about this or that. So what we're offering to our patrons is to ask those questions. Jahan's going to be our story within the story for the month of December. So if you have a question for her, if you want more information about what happened in her life in a particular moment, go to your Patreon account, send us a message, ask us those questions, and we will get those to Jahan as well. When Jahan finished sharing her story, I knew instantly that she was supposed to pray for all of us. Her faith is so deep and her reliance on the Lord is so profound that when she prays in just a minute, she imparts that to all Mm. of us. So we're going to end today's episode with Jahan's prayer. So listen to this and receive, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you for every person that's listening. I pray, Father, that you come alongside them, Jesus, with your sweet presence, with your Holy Spirit. You know where they are. You know their greatest need. You know their joys, their sorrows. Lord, my prayer for them is that they will know you so intimately, that you will draw them to yourself with such loving kindness, oh God. I pray for those that are sick, that are hurting, that you bring healing and comfort. I pray for those that are lost, that you bring them back to you. I pray for those that are hungry and thirsty, you fill them with yourself. I pray for those that are broken and hurting, oh God. Will you come alongside them and bring the healing that they need. Those that are struggling with addictions or have children that are fallen off or prodigals, oh God, will you bring them back to you? 
I pray, Father, that the way you have walked alongside me and helped me daily and just made my life beautiful. I pray that you make their lives beautiful. It's not anything about what we have in the natural or materially. It's about having you an ever, ever present help in our point of need an ever-present friend that sticks closer than a brother stick closer to them oh god in times like this where life is so uncertain oh god may they know your voice may they hear you when they open their bibles may you speak to them oh god give them beautiful dreams and visions about you Anchor them in you, O oh God, as only you can. I just thank you and I praise you, Father. Do miracle workers, working, you know, miracle workings in their lives as only you can. I just thank you and I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. <music>